1: Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Keon Sabani. It is Sunday night. Uh, we've just finished the whole slew of uh, weekend La Liga games. And we're coming off a 4-1 victory away at Mestalla. And joining me to break this down and answer questions is our tactical guru, Om Arvin. Om, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. It's nice to finally have a podcast where we talk about something good about Real Madrid against a quality opponent right like the Deportivo game was like we were all happy but it was Deportivo Uh, Valencia is a title contender well I guess no one is a title contender besides Barcelona but they kind of are they were at the beginning of the season so they were definitely a tough opponent I I think I don't think it was a perfect performance I think some people might be over exaggerating how good we were but at the end of the day we won 4-1 and we haven't won at Messiah for a very long time so just just the result, you know, yeah, getting back to winning, you know, no matter what, it's just a really good feeling, and that, that was kind of how it was last season, right? Like, a lot of times we were like, well, the performance wasn't convincing, but we won, and then that just kept happening and kept happening, and eventually we won two trophies. I would be totally fine if that happened again this season. We ended
1: up winning the Champions League that way. <laughs> um, I, look. That idea is such a—I uh, don't know—it it just seems so dangerous to me at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I'm know, already trying like to pump the brakes I... on so many takes about you know, in my mentions oh, personally, yeah. I've had I've had people saying, okay, you know what, you know, we're in we're in our groove, we're gonna we're gonna handle PSG just fine, and oh, yeah, and yeah. get to the Champions League final. I'm I'm not there yet.
2: I I don't understand like. I'm just repeating myself, I said this so many times, but I don't understand why we're so reactionary and binary, right? Because when the PSG draw came out, there were so many Madrid fans that were like, oh yeah, we're going to smash them, I'm not scared at all. Yeah. And then after that, we just went on a horrible run in La Liga and everyone's like, that's it, we're finished, PSG is going to destroy us, and off the back of essentially two La Liga wins, it's back to, oh, I'm not worried about PSG, I'm going to destroy them. I'm like, I don't understand this. What's wrong with being either cautiously optimistic or cautiously pessimistic, because I think there's a case for both, but why does it have to be the two extremes? Like I just I just don't understand like why Madrid fans and just sports fans in general just have to like you know, just be so reactionary. Let their mood swing from side to side like that.
1: Well um it's actually interesting to, to note how how fine the margin of error was in this game and how close it was oh, yeah. Yeah. to being two two a three two loss and and how it just swung and became a four one victory because um I think when when it was all wrapped up the brilliance of the two the last two goals of the game really changed the the tone and in what what we perceived this game to be because um there was two moments of brilliance from two substitutes, two great passes and two great finishes um especially the crow's finish and before that it was it was a lot of recurring issues that we've seen this season and, uh, a Mestalla that was riled up, a Valencia team that was fired up and was getting chances. And, um, and, you know, those two goals obviously flipped everything. And, and now we were talking about it as one of the best performances of the season. Um, mm. I, in my head, I was, I was thinking it was probably a top three La Liga performance, but then, then I kind of went, it, it was in terms of scoreline, um, Yeah, this Sevilla and Depor but in terms of performance you could maybe argue the one against Anueta in in Anueta was better Um, Yeah, yeah,
2: I mean I think yeah, I think the way You just kind of described your feelings about the game is pretty much pretty much just sums it all up Right because the the two goals at the end of the game that wrapped things up did give the game a very different feeling And, And I too came away immediately after thinking wow this, this was incredible, but as soon as I calmed down and I, I looked at the expected goals, I went back and I rewatched some parts of the match that I, I felt was necessary to properly understand the game. You know, I saw that it wasn't the greatest performance. It, obviously, we deserved to win at the end of the day, but we did score two penalties. Our open play expected goals was less than Valencia. Obviously, when you add the penalties in, um, we were at like something like two point seven and Valencia were like one point five or something like that. And then just from the eye test, especially the second half, Valencia had so many chances or chances where they like crossed the ball wildly and they, they weren't able to capitalize into their their chances into actual shots. But they were very dangerous situations because for a large portion of that second half and for I I'd say the majority of it. We were just pinned in our own half. We couldn't handle Valencia's press. And they just kept coming at us in transition and we were disorganized. And it really, really looked like they were going to score. They did score and it looked like they were going to score an equalizer. And that was really worrying. And we definitely didn't play well in that instance. And I think I think really the, the pressing aspect of the entire game is a good way to discuss the tactics side of it. Because I think it's summed up our problems both in our pressing and in our ability to handle Valencia's press because in the first half I thought in like the first five minutes we were getting that four-one-four-one press back from the four-three-three, which you know, the, the, the kind of pressing I admire so much and the kind of pressing that I think is the best Zidane has ever done with this team it's it's what we did versus Sevilla last season when we beat them in the Copa del Rey and it's like oh Zidane is taking the next step here that's what everyone thought and I thought that'd come back where the wingers um, press the fullbacks, the central midfielders um, go up to press the center backs, and then Casemiro kind of sweeps things up at the back, and Benzema presses the goalkeeper. And we did that for about five minutes, and then after that, it just disappeared. It was like it—the intensity just wasn't there. I felt like Benzema was the only one who was doing any harrying. You know, he was pressing the centre-back. A lot of the times he'd come and press one of the defensive midfielders, one of the, one of the players in the double pivot. But otherwise, I, I didn't see any concerted effort from all the other players. And it didn't seem like because they were lazy, right? Because Gareth Bale is not a lazy player, but he wasn't pressing. So it seemed like a schematic thing. So, But the problem was, even though we weren't pressing, we were still set up in a way that we could have pressed. So our our compactness was kind of loose. So if you don't press but you're in a position to press, there will be spaces that can be exploited in behind you. And the reason you press is so those spaces aren't exploited, right? And so what happened is just Valencia had ease in getting into our final third, but in the first half, they were wasting it. Like, they were trying to play long balls. Uh, Guedes was having a terrible game, you know, trying to just force things down the wing. But in the second half, they really tried to exploit that more. And then once they were able to get into our own half, they would counter-press and they'd press really ferociously. So there would be like... There would be... Because they had two strikers and a winger, and so if the ball moved to the wing, they'd have a situational front three. had have the winger this, and the two strikers press on that side of the pitch really hard. And then if it was in the center, they'd press with two strikers, and one of the central midfielders would step up to Mark Kroos or Modric or Casemiro, whoever was trying to come to overload the press. And if you think about... The number is in the situ in that situation because it's a four four two and we're a four three three. There will be players behind that press that we can access if we're just able to retain the ball and stay calm on it. Because you know, there's the defensive midfielder and the center backs versus the two strikers. That's a three versus two, and if they push a central midfielder up, which they did, that leaves another central midfielder who can. You know, match that one central midfielder behind, along with another, because we have three central midfielders and they have two. But we never did it. We never looked to openly use those overloads and hold on to the ball and be patient and find and find those outlets. Instead, we freaked out. Um, you know, to Valencia's credit, pressed really well with cover shadows to make up for those overloads. But we've seen this team beat better pressing systems before, and it was it was really disconcerting to see us not be able to handle that, and that nearly lost us the game.
1: Oof, there was a lot there um that was uh, quite a monologue um <clears throat> the the expected goals in the past two games combined xg ram just combined xg was 3.03 plus two penalties and that resulted in 11 goals and mm-hmm. that is just an outrageous statistic that just didn't exist before those two games really like we were completely just not not hitting the mark on our on our xG, which was way higher, and our on, and our conversion was obviously way lower. The press, mm. um, look, I mean, like you mentioned, the first five minutes, like the very first, almost like the very first possession of the game, where Valencia had the ball, the BBC were pressing really well. They were pressing high, they were yeah. hounding, and then it kind of just dissipated. And I think you're right about like you know generally in in a lot of football games you watch there are there are teams who press high early on and they just fade they run out of energy or they or they just implement it strategically at like the bo- the beginning of both halves try to set the tone try to see if they can sneak something uh and then it kind of just wanes um but last season, Real Madrid could sustain it you know um. Mm-hmm. I remember, like, probably the peak of it for me was against Bayern, and especially in Munich, and we did such an amazing job pressing them. Uh, whether it was goal kicks or just them coming out of the back, and um, and Bale, like, historically, just really high defensive IQ. He he does that really well. Um, in terms of, I guess, getting out of it, and, and your point about Valencia's counter press and all that, and, and the second half where we just couldn't even get out, in the in the first half in particular, actually. You know, to me I thought Riam just half was defined by um, emphasizing counterattacks, trying to yeah. move off the ball and, and sling some through balls, but also they just couldn't really take advantage of Valencia's high line. Like Valencia played a high line and they also left a lot of space, and Ronaldo had a ton of space. Like, if you watch Real Madrid when they get the ball, they retain possession. And you look at the position of Ronaldo, generally, he was in a lot of space in behind the defense. And we just couldn't get the ball to him. Whether And, and these are from, like, elite passers. Like, Varan, one of the best passing defenders in the game. Um, just couldn't hit the mark. Kroos also struggled. Marcelo struggled. Um, even Benzema dropped deep a couple of times, and he had some really you know, easy passes to make and he just couldn't make them. Having said that, that they all, like, individually, I thought they played pretty good. Uh, but there were definitely moments where we just couldn't take advantage of, of, of the counterattack in a in a way we, we could have more consistent like we did with the first penalty.
2: And if I could, if I could diagnose the problem, if I could be so bold to diagnose the problem, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm like, going into the closet and pulling out some skeletons here because this is something we used to discuss a lot. But, I feel this really was one of the reasons we struggled to get out of the press so much in counterattack. I, Casemiro was a liability that game. I don't think there's anywhere anywhere else around that. Um, you know, he has over the course of his career at Madrid improved in his ability to deal with pressure and improved just in his ability on the ball. But against Valencia, he was terrible. He was he, he looked he looked extremely shaky. You know, if he wasn't giving the ball away. He was playing these really nervous, you know, badly weighted passes that that would be completed because Modric and Kroos would touch the ball, but then they'd end up losing it because of how badly weighted Casemiro's pass was under pressure, and because of that, Modric and Kroos needed to be coming. They needed to come deeper and deeper in the first phase of possession, and that is what essentially. So we got clogged in our own half, right, with Modric and Kroos. And so that didn't allow us to be able to find those overloads and higher outlets up front because it was Casemiro who was one player up front and we had Moderton cross sitting deep. So in essence, we didn't really have an effective outlet in midfield to, to beat the press when theoretically we should, right? When you're just looking at, at it from a positional play perspective, just from just essentially just numbers versus numbers, Theoretically, we should have we should have been able to do it, but we couldn't because the personnel on the pitch didn't allow it. And specifically, Casemiro, who has improved, right? He just he just regressed to the worst version of himself. I mean, it was it was again like what used to say was a typical Casemiro game. He made something like eight tackles, yeah. five interceptions. The
1: most on the pitch. Yeah,
2: but then he was he was just so bad on the ball, and it really just hampered our ability to come out of the press. And that's why I thought. Kovacic should come on even though Casemiro even though Valencia was really dangerous and we needed Casemiro's ball winning ability I thought in that game the bigger problem was us retaining the ball under pressure and that was the real reason we we were in danger of losing the game and that's why I thought in that instance Kovacic should should have come on um, you know at around like the 65th minute or something because he's one of the most press resistant players in the world I mean he can just beat three players off the dribble like it's nothing And it was concerning to me that Zidane didn't see he didn't identify that as the problem and instead brought on Lucas Vasquez, who look I I love, I think he's underrated, I think he can be a good impact sub. But our issue was not defense on the wings. It wasn't needing more pace and more crosses on the right wing. It was our ability to retain the ball and protect the center via retaining the ball under pressure and I think we got I think we got I think Zidane got away with it by making the wrong subs and really he should have brought Kovacic on for Casemiro.
1: Um against Deportivo I thought Casemiro was good, apart from his his crazy giveaway when the game was already over and Nacho cleared it off the line and saved his blushes. In this game you mentioned the tackles, he was kinda everywhere in terms of just you know, this is almost like the stereotypical Casemiro game where we always say, like, he yeah. does a lot yeah. of great and he does a lot of bad. And he works hard. He's all over the place. He makes eight tackles. He was also um, on skates when Condogbia shot the <laughs> that, that great save from Kayler. By the way, just from that one play, I want to say Condogbia was, I thought, incredible for Valencia. Um, yeah, just really the well. way he was fighting for them, the way he was intercepting passes and reading the game and just generally being a menace. And Kalor was fantastic as well. And, you know, he's low-key having a fantastic season. Um, and, you know, the only thing I can say about Casemiro, though, is, like, I guess to be fair, I mean, like, almost everyone on the team has been bad in terms of passing. Like, not just him. Like, yeah. Like, even our, like, elite passers are struggling. So that that's the only way I can kind of just justify and, like, give him a leash. Um, but look i mean i think I think we're on the same page in terms you know, he is suited for a four through three anchor role in in the sense that in a, in a scheme where we concede a lot of chances he does he does mass some things by doing a lot of hard work. um The other thing is i'm like i'm we kind of looked at this as a four three three against Depor, it was uh, albeit against the worst opponent. Modric had a lot more freedom generally, and if you look at the heat maps from this game, it's not nowhere anything near where you know Modric was able to play really high up the pitch against Depor, and mm-hmm. and he was kind of free because Carvajal and Bale make a really good right hand duo, and they can do defending, they can they can attack, and and Modric is relieved. In this game, Modric played really deep, and Kroos on the opposite mm-hmm. side played played pretty high. And kind of just reminded you of like the previous games where you have this kind of weird, unsymmetrical shape, which, which is fine, but it it also it can, you know, I I think we're lucky that Guedes had a bad game. You mentioned it. Oh, I noticed yeah. there was a lot yeah. of space in behind Marcelo in this game in the first half especially, and yeah, and I think yeah, uh, sorry, go no, on. no, go ahead. That was it.
2: Yeah, I was gonna, cause I I think um. Cause Carlos Soler had an injury problem, right? And then he came on in the second half um, for Guevez, who who had an injury, which is why he was subbed off. But I think the reason he, the the manager uh, Marcelino did that was to exploit the space behind Marcelo, Mm. Um, like you said, because there was tons of space behind him. Plus Ronaldo's on the left wing, and his defensive commitment can vary from game to game. We don't know how it. We don't. He can be a good defender, but it's not consistent, right? It's not like Gareth Bale type commitment. And yeah, we're just we're lucky that Guedes had a terrible game, and also pros is not the greatest defensive presence when he plays on the left, right? Like that Marcelo Cross Ronaldo triangle is one of the weaker defensive sectors on the pitch. Yeah. And yeah, we're we're lucky Guedes had a bad game. So like, yeah, I mean, as, as we're talking through this, I'm assuming like our listeners are getting the idea that this wasn't the greatest game. There was some luck involved. Like we did we did play well in some instances, but. You know, this shouldn't be the game that makes you feel super confident, right? Like, oh, we're going to smash PSG 5-0 now because I don't think that's what this game means.
1: Here's what it means. It means that um, Real Madrid actually didn't attack that well in, over the course of 90 minutes. And they had some luck defensively and Kaylor Navas had a great game. But it also means that it felt a lot more like last season where we could grind it out. Yeah. Where we haven't mm-hmm. felt that way this season, you know? Um yeah. And we I think we all had some real anxiety at the point where we were up 2-1 in in the second half Valencia were coming in waves. Bale had just been subbed off for Lucas Vazquez and I thought Bale was one of our most dangerous players and he 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 was creating some good chances at least. Um and it felt like it might unfold like it it does and and we grinded it out. So I think that's why you should feel good about it is is kind of like this intangible thing where this aura where we actually felt um, we could turn it around and steal it late and and we did well, we didn't steal it late, but we insured it late mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Anything else you want to note about this game before we move to questions?
2: no, i think I think I touched upon all the things I wanted to
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean um i guess i will just mention I thought Kroos was fantastic. This was like, yeah, it I felt thought like was- a really good cruise performance.
2: I think he was the highest chance creator on our team. Um, I think he was the cleanest with the ball. I think he actually had 90% passing accuracy. If I'm 92% not wrong, 90%
1: passing but... accuracy. Okay. Um, yeah. most on the team for sure. Perhaps most on the field. Three key passes, which is the most on the team. Which again, again shows you that if you can be the highest chance creator with three, it it wasn't that great of an offensive game. Apart from the just being efficient and two moments of brilliance in the second half.
2: Um, yeah yeah. I mean I think that just shows right like this is why Kroos is important like where we had an earlier question like what does Kroos provide us this is one of those things when we're under intense pressure no one is better than in world football than retaining the ball and ensuring that we can get through opposition pressure
1: yeah yeah um questions from patrons uh as you all know by now we have a patreon page where you can go and pledge and you can donate and uh you can get different rewards and uh We've gotten mics, Gabe has gotten a mic, I've gotten a mic, and we've just ordered a mic for Om. So now the three podcast hosts will have a a mic, and he's not using it tonight, but he'll be using it next podcast, hopefully. Uh, Just ordered it on Amazon, so uh, hopefully Om will have that for next pod. So thank you to your donations. Also, quick shout-out to our patron, Andrew Caleb Gomez. The new music you hear in the intro and the outro, that is made by him. So Huge shout out. If you guys need music, he's your dude. Just send him a message on Patreon, and I'm sure he can help you out. Okay, patron question number one from Essa Hariri. He says, Although Isco has become much more direct in passing more key passes than ever before this season, do you think playing without Isco means playing more direct in counter-attacking football and less possession? Um, Well, that's the first part of the question. We'll leave the second part for later. So this recurring Isco question, which we address every podcast. Um, I'm not sure our opinion changes about this, to be honest, from week to week. Do you have I mean, anything I, to say about this?
2: I think this is a slightly different take in that it's asking specifically about how Isco affects counterattacks. I mean, it's not a new question, mm-hmm. but I think generally it's like, do we play it better without Isco? And I think <clears throat> this is a better phrase question. I mean, so I will be nuanced here. I I think we can play a very effective counterattacking game with Isco and the team. I think the idea that he holds onto the ball too long and is not incisive, I think that's a vastly over-exaggerated concept. But I do think it has a slight amount of merit. But if you look at last season, a lot of our our, our wins in the league when we, we played in that diamond with Isco in the attacking midfield role were due to counterattacks with Isco playing decisive through balls to Ronaldo. As, as If you remember that Celta game, one of them is Isco holding off like two defenders and then playing a a through ball to Ronaldo, who finishes one versus one, and that was a common theme throughout the season. So, we we can play a direct counter game with Isco, but obviously, he the the way his skill set is built, he doesn't have that much pace. He is a player that likes to dribble, um, you know, sometimes over a passing option, and he does like to play in a slightly slower tempo. So I think yeah, if you played Gareth Bale, who is faster, stronger much more direct in the way he plays, I think we do have an advantage in terms of counterattacking football. But I I don't think that playing Isco is like a huge, huge downgrade in the way of counterattacking. Because again, remember the Atletico Madrid game where we won 3-0 last season at the Cal Isco was on the pitch and we won that game in counterattack and it was thanks to what Isco was doing. So yeah, I mean, it's it maybe like just... If it's Isco replacing Bale, then yes, I think by a slight amount. But otherwise, I, I don't really think it, it negatively impacts our ability to counterattack.
1: Look, I, I actually don't understand where this narrative comes from that Isco plays this way and, and that's that's the way it is and, and he just can't help us. Like, this idea that Isco is a slow ball hug to me is, is so crazy. Um like, I get if you compare him to someone I mean, like... Maybe,
2: maybe it was true, like, at the very beginning of this round. Yeah, because... But it's it, been vastly overblown. Yeah.
1: yeah, because it happened, like, once or twice earlier this season where he didn't pass to Ronaldo and everyone's like, oh, my God, he's still hates Ronaldo, he's selfish, he's a ball hog. <laughs> we just, we don't have enough to back it up. I, I saw this ridiculous video put together like, after the Depor game where, or was it against Leganes? Like, maybe it was against Leganes, I don't know. Um, where some media outlet put together a video of why Isco was a ball hug. And it was three three plays. The first one was he didn't pass to Ramos and he sh- decided to shoot instead from a, a decent shooting pos- position. Uh, and the other two were just, I can't even remember what they were, but I remember watching at the time, I was like, this is such a stretch. Like, this is, this is really trying to push an agenda on someone. Um, I get if you're comparing him to someone like James last season where... To me, like if you look at their play in the final third, Isko's the type of player who will wait to suck in defenders and, and try to hold the ball as long as possible to so that the next person has space to work with just by virtue of creating space and sucking in defenders. Whereas Chaim is the type of person, as soon as he gets it, he knows where it's going and it just zips. But mm-hmm. to, to me, the eye test this season with Isko is so exaggerated. And I actually think he's been fine lately. He's been playing quite direct um and i i think he's insanely talented and i think it's crazy this this idea that we have in our heads and what's funny is that it, this idea only exists among like certain fans because i remember talking to this of alex kirkland of realmja tv and he was like completely shocked he's like i've never heard this before he's like this doesn't this is not in our world like no one talks about this ever um here are some stats for you his key passes are up since last season Successful passes are up since last season. Like his just passing accuracy is better. His take ons are better. Um, the only metric that's really down is are his assists by slight margin per ninety metrics, and that's only because we're just not finishing chances this season. I just think it's crazy. Like we're really exaggerating this agenda of ours. <laughs> like this collective idea. Yeah, and I think. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, and I think it also has to do right with the fact that um, I think I think something. I think Isco's goal-scoring record last season gave us a slightly unrealistic um, expectation or view of the kind of player Isco is. And because people are like, oh, this is finally the Isco who has... You know, Isco's finally right This is the Isco we want. And Isco was literally doubling his expected goals total for for that period where he just exploded with goals. And that... that I'm sorry, but that's never going to be sustainable. Like, you can do that in a hot streak, which is exactly what Isco did. But you are never going to see that Isco next season because it's just not something that players can do. Even Mbappe in his in his um, season with Monaco who's literally doubling his expected goals. You get it with with PSG. It's a lot more reasonable now. He's still scoring really well, but he's he's not at a goal per game anymore, and his goals are a lot more comparable to his expected goals. So even Mbappe, who's a generational talent, already an elite finisher, that kind of regression to happens for him. It's definitely happening for Isco. And I think that's part of it, right? Because it gave people the image of, oh, Isco's finally decisive. He has so much end product now. And then this season, it's like, well, where is he? I mean, Isco still scored a fair amount of goals, I think. I think he's one of our highest scorers, um, you know, which is partly because no one else has been really scoring. It's like him in Asensio and now Ronaldo, um, but yeah, like I, I, I think that's part of it. And I, I do think that needs to be addressed because it's become a narrative now that Isco had be- become an elite scorer last season. And it's a disappointment that it's not happening now when in reality, if you look deeper at the numbers and at the, ch- the quality of, of, of shots that he was taking, it was never going to sustain itself.
1: The second part of S's question is, uh, do you think it's time to abandon crossing as a sole attacking option? The best games of Real Madrid this season, 5-0 against Sevilla, 7-1 Depor, 4-1 Valencia had the lowest crosses per game, 10, 8, and 12 respectively, compared to our season's average of 27 per game. First of all, shout out to Essa for copy and pasting my tweet into his own question. <laughs> <laughs> this is my tweet word for word. Um, so I had tweeted this after the game because I was interested in just seeing if there's any correlation, and not implying that there's a causation, but it was just interesting t- perspective to look at, that... Um, you know, and, and arguably these aren't the three best games of the season. Um, you can you can switch out the Valencia game for Sociedad, and this is obviously only talking about the league, so I disregarded Dortmund. Um, so against Sevilla, ten crosses; against Depor, eight crosses; against Valencia, twelve crosses, and the usual number is twenty-seven on average. Um, talk talk me through this. Is this um, what is the causation? is there any correlation is it just it does it is it just a meaningless stat what is it uh,
2: it's difficult because the Valencia game it i don't think it was like or we didn't really get a chance to see what the conscious attacking plan was when we were in possession because really everything dangerous that happened came through counterattacks and in yeah. the second half it was just the ball bouncing around in our own half so i think because of that we there weren't a lot of crosses because we were counterattacking and and we had a chance to like counter counterattack through the middle and stuff and usually counterattacking teams have left less, less crosses if you look at like um, Real Madrid since Mourinho came uh Mourinho's Madrid actually has the least number of crosses um, per game huh, because of how we because of how if if I'm correct I, I looked at this like 2 years ago I think or, or or a year ago I I think I'm I think I'm correct on that I'm 95% sure and it's because we counterattack more, and we based our system around that, right? So you have more through ball opportunities and stuff like that. Against Debor, we dominated possession, we, we dominated the entire game, <clears throat> and you know, I I think I think it's I, I think there is some causation there, right? Um, because it's it's always good to have variation. Um, so like yeah, to the, basically to answer that question, do you think it's time to advance the sole attacking option? Obviously, you should never just have one form of attack. But I do think it's even more important now that we do. Because last season we were getting away with it, right? Like we were crossing like 35 times a game and we need to win. We're just crossing and crossing and eventually it worked. And as we mentioned before, teams have adjusted to this. I I wouldn't be surprised if teams sat down and and, and said, well... Okay, why did Madrid beat us last season? And it was because of their crossing game. So how are we going to stop their crossing game? And it's become a lot less effective. Ronaldo, um, Benzema, basically, even Sergio Ramos has got a lot less good looks inside the box. And teams have marked Marcelo and Carvajal a lot better when they're crossing. So when your best and most useful attacking weapon is nullified it's really, really important to diversify your game. And I think we did that versus Depor. We did that versus Sevilla, and we saw the results. And we are definitely capable of doing it. It just requires a certain level of intent. It requires a certain level of of midfield structure. And, you know, we did it sporadically last season as well. And I think we really do need to continue this. I, I don't know if it'll really be a problem against PSG, because I assume that both teams will try to control possession and if they don't we'll be the ones counterattacking. so that shouldn't be the biggest issue there um but yeah in in league games moving forward we should definitely try to diversify our approach i mean that's a pretty common sense um strategy
1: yeah i mean i mean that's what you said is really to me just the fundamentals really of the game um you look at you look at the most successful team in La Liga this season, it's obviously Barcelona. And um, they have the least amount of crosses per game and that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that one scheme is better than the other, but it it means that, what's interesting about Barcelona to me is that when they do cross, it's almost like always deadly because it's very pragmatic when they do. It's like a Jordi Alba cutback. It's like, you know, uh, an overlap on the flanks. And, you know, that's something that, that we saw against Depor too, whereas like, you know, when, when we had those numbers and those our overlapping runs, it was it was easier and it was less predictable. And also um, you know, to be able to rely on things like the Marcelo Asensio two man game and, and Kovacic cross movement off the ball and shooting, to be able to rely on a multiple array of options is obviously is obviously beneficial. Um it's less predictable. And to your point about, you know, teams predicting it. Um, I think that's clear. I mean, like, we know. We have the sample size. We know what the coaches say in the press conferences about the team. We know that the eye test is that teams know that they can flood the box and they can punish us on the counter because they know that's exactly what our weakness is. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely been scouted. Um, I will say five of the 12 crosses... Two of, them, two of them were just Kroos playing short corners and then whipping them in right away, so I don't even know how much you count that. Five of them were Gareth Bale crosses, which to me, like, if the majority of your crosses are Bale, who was by far, to me, the best crosser on our team, I'm okay with it. Because every time Bale does anything like that, where he whips it in or he cuts it and he whips it in, it's dangerous. Um, <clears throat> anything more about crosses or we you want to move on?
2: I mean, I, I think I, I just want to say, like... That- because you mentioned, right, the way Barcelona cross, because I don't want people to get the impression that crossing is bad and it's yeah, not useful, no. because it obviously is. We yeah. won a league title using crosses, and it wasn't always like this, just because nothing is ever consistent with, with Zidane in Madrid, but a lot of the times, we were crossing in high-quality situations. We had overloads on the flank, so we could create free crossing opportunities. For some, whatever reason this season, so much of our crossing has just been Marcelo or whoever the fullbacks are, just standing there, not even attempting to get past their man and crossing from deep. And it's just pointless. Because even if somehow the defender doesn't block it, you you haven't put yourself in a good position to, to find your man, right? You're crossing for, from deep without attempting to beat your man. Like You can't expect the cross to find its target. So... I mean, that's part of it, right? We're simply not crossing from good situations anymore.
1: Yeah, and I mean, um, that wasn't so much a problem against Valencia, but I remember, I think, to me, it peaked against Tottenham, where it was just basically a, a, a highlight reel loop show of of Marcelo and Isco trying to cross from the left, and Tottenham just laughing because they were blocking the cross, they packed <laughs> the flanks, and then they picked off everything and then just countered. Um, and that was a disaster. <laughs> Sure. next question is from our patron Mark Rady Mark says it looks like 4 through 3 fixes a lot of Madrid's issues, Modric and Cruz combine, Casemiro holds his position better and Ronaldo works better in space I still think Isco is key to Madrid's future where should he play in this setup does he play in the front three or in the middle, thanks guys P.S. it's nice to have a good win over a strong side away from home, thanks Mark um, we talked about this a little bit um, um. Where, where does uh where in the four 3 three Isco to me can play two four positions, Kroos, Modric, Bale, Ronaldo, right?
2: Uh, I mean I don't really like him on the right wing. Like the new players tried him there and he, he wasn't so great, but like yeah, I mean theoretically he could play there and it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not exactly a disaster. Um I mean I think I would I would really say three positions like basically except for Bales. Um and I think See, that's a difficult thing, right? Because moving to the four-three-three 3 does hurt Isco. Because I think at this point he, he can play as a central midfielder fine as long as he has an anchor behind him. And he started off as, as a left winger at Malaga, so That's not a problem at all. It's just that in this formation there are always people ahead of him and so he has to hit the bench. And that that's tough, right? Because Isco's a brilliant player. He was a key part of our, our, our victories last season. But it, it's what's best for the team. Um, I, I guess Sidan just has to rotate, right? Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's likely, I don't know, maybe if there's an injury or something, you know, Isko should definitely pr- play up front. Uh, but I think he should be rotated into Modric and Kros's position a lot, along with Kovacic. But that's where the problem of Ceballos arises, right? Because yeah. The reason Hamas left is because he was essentially an extra midfielder, I and mean, then we replaced him when, in my opinion, we didn't need to because we had too many central midfielders. So
1: yeah.
2: if we're so focused on getting Isco time in this, I mean, Ceballos is just, he's, a, he's, he's an afterthought, right? Yeah. Because Kovacic definitely deserves minutes. He, I mean, he's just too good to waste. Isco has proved himself time and time and again. And then you have Ceballos, who's a really good talent, but he has improved himself in the college and Isco has, so what
1: do you do with him? I mean,
2: it's tough. I I don't envy uh, Zidane having to figure out how to give them all minutes.
1: It's true. It's actually a really good point that I completely forgot about because I remember in the summertime, i writing articles about this, like there's no way we keep James when we have Isco and Asensio. We, do, we, have, to, we have to cut someone, and if you ask any fan that summer, they... I think 90% of them wouldn't have said Isco and Asensio over James any day. Just because we remember what Isco and Asensio were doing last season and that James and his limited minutes was really good, but he wasn't playing in any of the big games. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the only contribution he had in a big game was the the equalizer against Barca last season, which we lost. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, that's pretty much how I can remember.
1: Yeah. Um, not a knock on him. Fantastic player. Um, that That is obvious. But I'm just saying, like, in terms of what the fans perceived in terms of importance of development, who we wanted, it would have been Isco and Asensio at the time. Um, And it still might be, but um, I remember writing about it at the time. I was like, we have to not only not replace him, we just have to, we'd have to get rid of him without replacing him because you can't get a replacement and and give him minutes. Like it's just impossible. And um, now having said that, I was over the moon when we signed Ceballos, um, but I was, Terrified of his playing time, as I was of Urentes. I knew what was go- I knew what it meant for them coming back. So I was, I was half surprised we didn't loan them back out. To be honest, um, but it is what it is. I mean, I don't know. I, in terms of where does Isco play, I think I think we pretty much covered it. But then you're going into all these other headaches of Kovacic is brilliant. You want to get him as much playing time as possible, and I mean, and then you have Asensio who also needs to develop. Next question is from Christopher McCormick uh, on Patreon. He says, I'd honestly hate to be Zidane simply because he has to leave Kovacic on the bench week in, week out. I mean, of course, that flick for the goal was class, but he has so much in his locker aside from that. I'm yet to see, I've yet to see a space that Mateo couldn't dribble out of. Such a unique talent, and I hope that he will eventually find his way into the first team soon. Uh, this somehow came out exactly after our discussion about this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if this is really a question, Christopher, but I think we both agree with you there. Um, yep. Next patron question from Nick De Stefani. He says, "And the four through three shines again. I heard an unbelievable stat today. If the game stopped at halftime in La Liga this season, Madrid would be leading the table." Uh, I need to reread that. So, if the, if if the the games stopped, like the final whistle blew at halftime, basically, then Real Madrid would be leading the table. What does this say about Zidane and his ability to motivate tactically? Also, it is, is it just me or does Benzema basically function as a false nine in the 4-3-3 and look considerably better? Um, that's the first part of his question. So, second half collapse. This is a... It's a really difficult thing to, to figure out what the solution to this is. I don't know. We didn't go through it yeah, I mean, fully this game. We obviously, like, we were able to close it out. But it is a problem.
2: Yeah, it's, I, it's really hard. It's really hard, right? Because he asks... Is it Zidane's ability to motivate? It's it's very very hard to read these things, and yeah, anyone that like measure. pretends like they any anyone who pretends like they know it hands down is lying because we're not in the locker room, um, listening to what Zidane's saying, and, and like shooting videos don't count like as as evidence, right? Like we we just don't know. Um, I mean, it has to be some kind of mental aspect, right? To consistently come out in the second half and not perform in the way we did in the first. There is something mental about that. Is it complacency? Is it Zidane's ability to motivate? I don't know. Sometimes it's okay to just admit that you don't know because there's some, there are a lot of things we can't know without having insider information. And in. I, I don't know about Keon or anyone else, but I don't have that. So I simply do not know why. Tactically, for some reason, we look worse, in my opinion, in the second half. I feel like our structure gets even worse and it falls apart. And that could be mental. Um, but like, it's it's just baffling maybe it's just variance maybe it's just luck like I, I don't know but it's obvious that this cannot continue right um if if we want to stay because right now we're talking about staying in the Champions League place at this point as crazy as that sounds but if we want to stay there this this cannot continue to happen if we want to beat Paris Saint-Germain but this cannot continue to happen why I have no idea and also the Benzema question yeah I mean yeah, he always kinda of functions as a false nine slash deep lying forward and a four three three and I don't know if that's why he's looking better. I just think he's looking better because he's come back extra motivated, um and he knows the team could use him. And I think he's aware of that. And so he's playing to his maximum capacity at the moment.
1: Um I mean, yeah, the the Benzema question is, is pretty clear. Like even if you even you want to go on the heat maps, um, he's, he's always deep and he's generally coming from the left-hand side. Um, mm-hmm. and he's, he's far from a traditional nine. Oh, by the way, we should plug your video. Oh made a, a really great video, 12 hours of work, uh, where he went yeah. back through the years and, and put together clips of why, basically what makes Ronaldo and Benzema tick together. And it's a really, you know what I liked about the video? Not so much that it was a great video and it was well done. You put your blood, sweat and tears into it. Um, it it seemed to bring together a lot of madridistas. A lot of people, from what I've seen anyway, were like, "Oh yeah, this is um, this this brought us back to how how good these two were at their peak together." Um, and then you also had like your five percent of fans who were like, "What? This is this uh, yeah." Is... <laughs> um, they just didn't get it.
2: There was a five percent. They didn't get it. They were like, "Yeah, but Benzema is not good anymore. And Ronaldo hasn't scored a lot." It's like, guys, this is about their entire career together. It's yeah. not about you know, how good they are at the moment. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. It took a lot of work, but I really enjoyed making that video because that's my favorite strike force of all time. And they work in a very unique way um, in that Benzema plays a very unselfish role and and he's adapted his game to perfectly complement Ronaldo's, right? The essence of it is Benzema allows Ronaldo at times to essentially become the center forward in the team and use his, his his supernatural ability to score and find space in the box to benefit the team and Benzema will move out wide or he'll move deeper and he uses an immense creativity and understanding of space to do that. And it's just when you really think about it and when you really go back and look just how good they were together over the years and how they could dissect defenses you know, with, you know, tiki-taka, one-two touches, It it's just really beautiful to watch and I just wanted to make that right because they're on the decline. I think we've forgotten how good that used to be. And I just, I, I, I want their legacy to be remembered as one of the great strike forces in real history because it really is. It's going to be a while before we see something as effective like this again. And, you know, if you go back in history, there aren't too many strike forces like the Ronaldo Benzema one we had. And I just think it's important we appreciate that, right, as fans to so we can just enjoy it, right, for our own personal enjoyment. It's just good to look back on some of the great things in Real Madrid history and this is
1: one of them. Um, and if you're trying to figure out where to watch that, um, it's on our Facebook page. It's also on Uh It's also on Om's YouTube channel. So a bunch of different platforms you can watch it on. Um, second question, second part of this question from Nick, he asks, um, my work schedule has been crazy lately and will be for some time going forward. So I was wondering if you guys know of a website where I can watch replays of the games. Thanks. You're the best, hala Madrid. So Om and I know just Basically, living making a living off of spending 24 hours a day gutting gifts from from games. Um, We know the answer to this sadly it's fullmatchreplay.com or fullmatchsports.com. Occasionally, you can also get them on YouTube if you just search, like, you know, Real Madrid versus whoever, full match, you can probably find it there too.
2: Yeah, and if they're not on there, you just Google search Real Madrid versus whoever. Full match, and there's usually several options on Google. And if you don't want to go that route, you can um, sign up for Fubo TV, which is, um, yeah, it's like a legal streaming platform. You have to pay, I think, like 30 bucks per month, but you can record a DVR of up to like 20 to 30 hours of games or whatever, and they, they're saved for life if you want. And so you can go back and rewatch the games there and it's if you have a good internet connection it's guaranteed to be very high quality it's BM Sports commentators commentators if you like being um, so if you're willing to pay that's a very reliable option but otherwise there's the free options that Kian and I spoke of before
1: Do you have FuboTV?
2: Yeah, I do and I use the DVR option.
1: But you, do you use it for live games?
2: Yes, I I watch live games on there. Unless, like, sometimes it sometimes the streaming can be unreliable on that platform, so I use Reddit soccer streams to watch. But 95% of the time, I'm using Google TV for live game.
1: Yeah, okay. I've used it a couple times, and it was, like, unusable for me. That's why I asked. Uh, I must yeah, have just got them better. on a bad it's day. it's gotten
2: better. Okay. It's gotten better. Like, last season, it wasn't great.
1: Um, by the way, the BN commentary crew was just on... The, the Phil-Ray partnership has gone to another level this season. I think <laughs> it's, like... <laughs> It's like every year I feel like Ray can't stand Phil even more, <laughs> just to the point where there's like awkward silences or Phil will ask him a question, Ray will just just get angry and it's uh, it's highly entertaining. I
2: think I think it's like they like each other, but Ray just gets so annoyed with some of the things Phil says because Phil would be like, um, "Look at this statistic," and then Ray would be like, "Get your fancy, fancy statistics out of here!" And like it's just a fun rapport to watch.
1: I mean, the peak of the Legan game was not the game itself. That was a gong show. It was the <laughs> halftime. Ray, for those of you who didn't see the BN feed that game, or left at halftime, went to get popcorn or whatever. Um, not that I, I I, don't know anyone getting popcorn during a soccer game, but if what if you left and you didn't see it, uh, they the feed was showing a highlight on on the screen.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. And
1: Ray didn't <laughs> know he was on air. And in the background, you just hear him going, what now? Fucking hell! And it. And if you ever wanted to know what it's like to hear Ray Hudson swear, just um, I. I actually, someone tweeted it to me. I retweeted it on my timeline. If you go back far enough if on my you, Twitter.
2: If you DVR that game on Fubo TV, you have that moment for eternity. I, I don't mean to turn into a salesperson for Fubo TV right here, but I'm just. I'm just saying.
1: We should get them to sponsor this podcast. Actually. Yeah. Um okay, let's do three rapid fire questions from non patrons. Um let's just knock these out of the park. So Swanky Boss on Facebook says with Varan's injury record, Vallejo and Ramos injured do and Vallejo and Ramos injured. Oh man, this question is, is weirdly worded. So the que- let me just let me just <laughs> let me just paraphrase the question and ask it to you, okay? Uh, with the track record of Vallejo and Ramos being injured all the time. Um, and that goes with Varane too. Do Madrid need a centre-back or could Casemiro cover up if needed?
2: Uh, I mean, it's a valid question, right? Because there are injury issues. But I just think to get another centre-back would... Who's willing to do that? I mean, Nacho already is the utility man and he's willing to sit out for how many ever minutes that he needs to sit out. But I, I, I think we always managed, we managed okay but yeah, there have been times, right? But usually it's in a back three, so we haven't needed to do this. But we put Casemiro in center back, and it's always been a disaster. Like not once has Casemiro looked comfortable in that position, and we should never ever do that again under any circumstances whatsoever. I'd rather have Luka Modric as a center back. Um, yeah. It, not because not not because like anything against Casemiro, but like it's just unfair to him. Like he just doesn't understand that position, and he should never be played there. Um. Maybe, I guess, if we can somehow magically find a quality centre-back, because it's very, very difficult to be a centre-back for Real Madrid. You have to be of a very high quality. If we can find a player that is willing to literally play like two or three games per season, I don't see why not. But otherwise, it's just unrealistic and it's something we're going to have to live with.
1: We had one... We didn't have any centre-back subs on the bench, right? On Against Valencia, I think. I don't uh, think so. Um this is a this is a question I asked in the summertime which I was kind of worried about because we basically had Ramos and his suspensions, we had Varan and Vallejo injury prone and and God bless Nacho but
2: <laughs>
1: so we had four center backs and we had the option of doing something with Diego Llorente we decided to sell him um that part I was always on the fence about. I was, you know, if you asked me in the summertime what we should have done with Diego Yoranta, I couldn't have told you. I, I didn't have a good answer for it because on one hand, um, you bring him back and then you risk him being a fifth-choice center back and never seeing the light of day. On the other hand, you, you have this weird depth chart of four center backs and three of them not being consistently re- reliable in terms of giving you minutes because of their suspension and... Injury concerns. Um, and also, I thought Diego Llorente... I was actually surprised we we sold him. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure if there's a buyback on him. I remember having to answer this for a mailbag, and I found out. I think there may have been, but I can't remember. But Is not he playing really well this season? Sociedad is a weird team, and they're generally a mess, and they have a lot of individual talent. Individually, their back line of Odrio Zola and Diego Llorente and Inigo Martinez, these guys are good individually, as collectively they're a mess um i remember diego sounds Jordan like real t- madrid basically it uh <laughs> but like a poor man's real madrid basically um i do re- he does score a lot though um he has a knack for scoring headers off set pieces he scored like four last season he scored one this weekend against Villarreal, um and also he was pretty good defensively for malaga last season like in the second half of the season so Yeah, I mean, that would have been one solution is to bring him back. But you just can't... You can't foresee and to to really ride that much depth um, Mm -hmm. into the team is risky, you know, in terms of development, so. Um, Oh, yeah, this was supposed to be rapid fire. Next rapid fire question. Rana (laughs) Mohludin, sorry if I mispronounced that, says, what's your opinion about Vallejo playing as a defensive midfielder considering his aerial weakness?
2: So I remember discussing this very early in the season, like preseason type stuff, just toying with the idea because his greatest strength is his ability to pass. Yeah. And I mean he's he's really fantastic at passing. I mean he can really play vertical passes like he's an advanced midfielder. And I I thought that if we ever came the time where we just really thin in that position, I think we could stick Rayo there and it would be it would be a pretty safe option. I mean obviously because the thing about playing different positions is it's not always about is the player suited for does the player have the necessary skills to do the to do and I'm talking on the ball skills to carry out the role of the position. It more has to do with off the ball understanding of that position itself. Because if if you think about Casemiro as a center back, like tech, it, it doesn't really make sense on on the surface level why he isn't good there because he's strong, he's a brilliant tackler, he's aggressive. He's good in the air, but he just doesn't understand the the spatial aspect of it. He, he doesn't understand how he's supposed to stand with the back line. The runs he's supposed to make off the ball track you know, runs into the channel from that position. So that would be my only concern with playing bio as, as a defensive midfielder. But he's a very intelligent player. I think if we trained him in that position in case we ever needed him to play there, I think it could actually turn out to be you know, qu- quite a, a surprisingly positive thing. Um, you know, I have no qualms with training young players to play in different positions. This sport is moving towards total football. We need players like that. And I think Vallejo could be successful there, but he would never be my first choice. I think I think he really is best as a center back. And I think maybe like ten or fifteen years ago we would have thought put him in defensive midfielder position. But at this point in football it's very, very important that center backs have the ability to play their way out of the press. A very calm on the ball and therefore I would keep him as a center back but you know as for his aerial weakness that that is a concern right like I don't think it necessarily becomes less of a concern if he's in a defensive midfielder because you need that but that's just something he has to improve on I mean it would it would be unfair if Vallejo was perfect so I mean that's his one weakness and Varan also had that weakness and he and now it's no longer a weakness because he improved on it and it's Highly, highly possible that Vallejo improves on it. It's not a weakness
1: anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's almost a weakness that you need to figure out, regardless of what position you play. Because even if you look mm-hmm. at Casemiro as a as a defensive midfielder, he is responsible for so many set-piece clearances. Like, that is a huge asset that he brings defensively. Um, I would... I'm with you on the, the Vallejo as a theoretical DM, because like you said, he has... His distribution is really good. He doesn't get unnerved and oppressed. I like can he, he can play out of it, and he's intelligent off the ball. And he can read the game. He can read passing lanes. He can distribute. Theoretically, it makes sense. He's also built to play as the as a defender and a back three too. I, you know, it's it's exciting if he can if he can stay healthy. I think he can. You know, having said that, he's probably he would he would probably be like if that theoretical situation arose, he'd be what, like fifth choice <laughs> as a DM. He'd mm-hmm. be like Casemiro. Kroos, Kovacic, that's three. Jurante, four.
2: Jurante, right, yeah. yeah, and then him.
1: Um, last question of the podcast, and we're going to wrap it up. Nirvik Silwal um, says, how much money does Barcelona spend on referees? So this question obviously arises after their win against Alaves today, who, Alaves, by the way, I thought, played really well for the, their, the resources they had. Really narrow, compact line, fight like crazy, last-ditch challenges efficient counter-attacks exposing Barca's high line particularly in the first half and could have scored you know two or three goals in this game um eventually crumbled because you know Barcelona just have the firepower and um what I was surprised about Om is like we know that La Liga referees are shit and I don't think this Mm -hmm. is anything this is this should be kind of channeled in as a Barcelona question I guess I was surprised a bit because all the outcry for this game in particular was this handball that Alaves didn't get an Umtiti, which I thought wasn't a penalty anyway.
2: Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see the game, so I, I have no idea what happened. I, but I don't need to know to be able because obviously this, this question's a bit tongue in cheek, right? Um, but I think it brings up the larger discussion about the, the kind of victim attitude that both Madrid and Barcelona has when it comes to refereeing decisions, and that. Both tend, both both sets of fan bases, unsurprisingly, tend to think that the referees favor the other team. And if you really, really want to do this, you can go back to the footage and find hundreds of examples where we've had decisions that benefit us. We've seen plenty of decisions that benefit Barcelona. I mean, Barcelona haven't been awarded a penalty against them in like 70-something games. And Casemiro somehow still has never received a red card in his career at Real Madrid, which is bonkers. I mean, you can find examples like this all over the place, right? And that's the thing with agendas, right? Like if you're if if ag- ag- the agendas are based off confirmation bias, and confirmation bias is based off selective choosing of evidence. So you can play this game all you want, but the reality is, Real Madrid and Barcelona both tend to receive more favorable decisions than the rest of the other 18 teams do I think Atletico Madrid kind of does as well but indisputably with Real Madrid and Barcelona we are not the victims here like there is no doubt about that the real victims are the lower table teams who don't have a stake in the title race so it's Real Madrid and Barcelona who get the benefit of the doubt a lot of the time and mixed in with that is just the worst set of referees in the entire world um I mean, La Liga wrestlers are just fucking terrible. It's well established by now. So there's that and the fact that the real victims really aren't Real Madrid and Barcelona. And I'm At this point, I'm sick and tired of Real Madrid and Barcelona fans bickering with each other and pretending to play the victims. Real Madrid and Barcelona, we have no right to complain about referees. If you really want to go and look back at refereeing decisions, we don't have the right to do it. I mean, that's different from talking about the state of refereeing as a whole, right? Because it needs improvement and we need VAR and we need goal line technology that is different from playing victim and acting like oh barcelona gets all the decisions the real madrid gets all the decisions and that's the reason we lose the league no i i mean i'm fucking tired of like that line of thinking because it's just it's confirmation bias it's agendas when real madrid and barcelona benefit over teams like alavés and it's you know we don't have a right to complain about it and i I wish we could move past this because really There's a very logical way to progress from that, right? Because the the whole argument is illogical, and you have like so many big media outlets that capitalize on that sentiment. And there was one fucking poll like that was put out, you know, who benefits more from refereeing decisions, Real Madrid and Barcelona. I think Andrew Gaffney retweeted he's like, oh, just fuck off, please, because it's 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 media outlets just playing off this very primal just feeling of being the victim in this situation and just essentially exploiting this sentiment and and creating more of it and it's just so annoying because it's one of the more ridiculous parts of Real Madrid and Barcelona fan culture and it's something that can be easily eliminated if we just sit down and actually think about it and just address it objectively because everyone gets fucked over Real Madrid and Barcelona get fucked over you know less you know just a little less than other teams and the simple solution is to get VAR to get goal line technology and simply to have better referees but for some reason it has to turn into this agenda and and, and you know victim game and it's just so annoying
1: yeah i mean look I, i'm not sure if i have anything to add to that i um i will just clarify quickly that the i believe the the player who was fouled um today for barca i can't remember who it was but messi scored from that free kick it was the winning goal that player was offside apparently um but that again, that's neither here nor there, because the remaining teams in La Liga, like they're the ones who really suffer, and I, it's rare that I miss any La Liga game, like at all in the past two years, and every single game is a gong show in terms of this, and, and none of that makes the front page. No one no one posts and nothing goes viral about um, you know someone like uh, I don't know, Malaga or Espanol getting screwed by the referee. Um, no one cares and it happens game in game out all that shit so um, I think we're done I think we're just going to do patron shoutouts and wrap it up Om. so patreon.com slash managing managing Madrid one more time um, there's so many of you now and we are very thankful you guys have really helped the show grow and um, as you know one of your rewards if you pledge ten dollars or more is that you get a specific shout out to uh, on this podcast so shout out to all of our magnificent patrons shout out to these patrons in particular who pledged ten dollars more nick de stefane frederick sundros doug chisholm leon Stavrnakis, bjorn salvador john fernandez Said mahad sergio Monleon, red bat anthony vasquez Yahya ibrahim nick Robero, eric rogers Sheikh hatiri ian marley andrew gomez anton hackbrook jimmy Obey, daniel smith solomon ortiz and jeanette you guys are phenomenal thank you so much for your support we love you all. Um, and you will be able to hear Om's voice in a much more crisp fashion than you want to hear now. <laughs> Om Arvind, thank you very much for doing this, my friend. And uh, we'll chat soon. Halam Malik.